All right, good morning, Covenant Grace. If you guys want to start settling into your seats, we'll get started here in just a minute. Good morning, church. I'm Patrick. I'm the pastor here at Covenant Grace, and it's such a joy to be gathered together again uh, by the Lord for him to care for us and for us to honor and worship him for all that he has done for us. Um, and I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, if you're tired, you're welcome. If you're refreshed, you're welcome. If you are rejoicing, you're welcome. If you are in tears, you're welcome. If you are at peace, you're welcome here. If you are anxious, you're welcome here. If you are trusting, you're welcome here. You're welcome here if you are doubting. You're welcome here if you feel loved, and you are welcome here if you feel lonely. And you're welcome here if you are guilty, and you are in good company, because every single one of us is before a holy God. I want to remind you that it's not merely my welcome that I offer you or our church's welcome. It is the very welcome of God. He's the one who's gathered us together. And he welcomes you however you come because of who he is. And I want to remind us of that this morning with a call to worship from Micah 7. There we read these words, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Church, God has gathered us together this morning as his family and he has gathered us together as family this morning to care for us, to, to nurture us. Not because he needs anything from us, but because we desperately need him. And he is sufficient for us, for whatever we are lacking. However broken we feel, however much we have failed, he is sufficient for all that we need. So there's no better place for us to be this morning, church, than here, where God has summoned us and where he cares for his people. If you are new with us this morning, we are so glad that you are here to be with us. You are our guest, and we hope you feel welcome. If you need anything, grab any one of us. There's, there's nobody here at the church who wouldn't be happy to help you find your way around if you need help with anything. So please make yourself at home, and we're overjoyed that you're here. If you'd like to keep in touch with us and keep, uh, let us keep you informed on what's going on here at Covenant Grace, on the back of your program, there's a code you can scan for a Connect card. That just lets you give us your information so we can keep you in the loop on whatever you want to know and serve you that way. We'd be happy to do so. Also, for those of you who are newer, next Sunday morning before service at 9, we're going to do a little short class called Welcome to CGC. It's just from 9 to 9.30, uh, and it's just a little chance I'll be there and just walk you through some of the basics of who we are as a church and some of the kind of foundational things that shape us. So if you visited for a little while and you want a better handle on 
kind of who we are and a place to ask some some basic questions without jumping all the way into like a membership class or something like that. This is kind of a first step to dive a little bit deeper. So you can find that online, register there, or let us know on the connect card and we'll make sure you get the information. But I'd love to see you guys there, get the chance to hang out with you a little bit more. A couple other things we have going on here at the church. This week our grace groups are meeting. Those are gatherings of families at different homes throughout Columbia. If you're not a part of one of those, we'd love to have you join one. You can find them all online and just sign up. We'd love to have you check it out. You can check out a few, visit a couple before you land somewhere. That'd be great, but we'd just love to have you join us in that context to participate in the fellowship of the saints with us in that way. Coming up in the first week of February, we've got a class we're going to be teaching for our midweek gathering. Um, the class is called Identity and Vocation. A couple of big words, but basically what it is, it's about who are you and what do you do and how do those things relate. Uh, these are big topics in our world. Uh, so the things we're going to talk about are going to help you relate, uh, not just within the church, but they're going to help you relate to the world, where questions of identity are huge, right? But they're also going to help you think through how you spend your life, who you are in Christ, and how does that relate to what you do, whether it's in your work, in the home, anything you do and you're called to. Um, this is really significant stuff and very practical theology, right, where we take what we know to be true about God's work for us in Christ, and we apply it to the nitty-gritty of what we do every day, what we spend all these hours awake. You know, most of our time is spent doing regular stuff, right? Working, caring for kids, hanging out with people, just regular stuff. This is what that's about, right? So I'd love to have you guys join there. There's two options. There's an evening session and then a Saturday morning one. Sign up for whichever one you want. I look forward to walking through that with you guys. Another thing we have going on here at the church is a theology book club. We read a book about quarterly, and then we get together and talk about it. Our next one's going to come, be coming up in March, March 25th. That's when we get together, so it's time to start reading. And our book is going to be a book called What Happens When We Worship. Uh, and the idea is, uh, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we put a big emphasis on the ordinary means of grace, the way that God has promised to care for his people, grow them, and develop them through the ways that he's promised, primarily the corporate things that he does with us together as a body. And with this book does is it walks through, hey, what does God actually do when we do this, right? The externals of what we do here, they don't look like anything special, right? We're in plastic chairs in a high school gym that we throw together every week. Like, there's nothing fancy or profound about anything on the external side of this. But that sometimes tricks us and causes us to miss what God is actually doing when we gather here together and do the things that he's called us to do. And that's what the book's about. It's about diving into what does God do when we participate in these things that he's given us, right? The music, the praying, the preaching, the reading of God's word, the sacraments, all of those things. Uh, and it's really rich. So uh, I'm gonna send out links this week where you can get the book, a little bit more info about it, jump in, read it with us, and then we'll get together, have some refreshments and talk about it. So that's the plan there. Lastly, before we continue on in worship, uh, we're, the church is the family of God, right? The local church is the, the way that gets expressed. And just like a family, everybody has different gifts, strengths, weaknesses, needs. And a family functions by everybody using the things that they have to care for the other people. And, and that's what we are trying to do as a church. So if this is your church home and you want to join in with that, you can do so by two primary ways are serving and giving. There's a bunch of teams that work to kind of help make things run here at the church. We always need more hands to make the work lighter. We'd love to have you jump in on that. 
And then giving. Obviously, doing ministry in this world takes money, and God has ordained that that comes through the generosity of his saints. So uh, we don't do serving or giving out of compulsion. We don't do it to earn any approval from God. Everything we need for that comes from Christ as a free gift of grace, right? We give and serve from the rest we have in him, right? Because he has done all we need, we now can look outside of ourselves and give of ourselves to each other and to see the ministry of the gospel go forward. So that's what we always want to fuel those things. So uh, if you want to join in with us on those, on the back of your program, you can see the ways to kind of move forward with that. All right, we're going to move into worship. And one of the things that we always like to remember as we do this is to remember our sinfulness, um, which on the surface is not something we really like to do very much, right? We'd much rather ignore it, avoid it. We'd much rather feel righteous and good on our own. But when we feel that way, it, it's not true, right? If we do feel that way, it's just self-delusion. First John tells us, if anyone says they have no sin, they deceive. We deceive ourselves when we say that, right? It's just not true. And so one of the most helpful things, one of the most orienting things we can do when we gather together is to remember how we come. We don't come because we deserve anything from God. We come looking for grace and mercy from a God who's gracious and kind and merciful and delights in steadfast love. So in order to remember that, we confess our sin together corporately. It reminds us of our relationship to God and also reminds us of our relationship to each other. Whatever we are out in the world, no matter how successful or unsuccessful we are, we are an evil, equal footing here. None of the other things about you, what your family looks like, what your job looks like, none of that changes anything with your hierarchy here. We are sinners who are recipients of the grace and mercy of God. And that's it. So this not only properly orients us towards God, it properly orients us to each other. It, it evens us out the way that it should as sinners in need of grace. So if you would, church, stand with me. And if you open to the inside of your program on the top left, you'll see a corporate prayer of confession. We're going to pray that together in just a moment. But as we do, before we do, I just want to give you a few seconds, first of all, to think about yourself. It doesn't take me long to uh, remember my own sin personally, the ways that I have failed and fallen short of God's holiness this week. I just want to give you guys a few seconds to just remember that before we confess corporately and are reminded of God's grace. Church, let's pray together. Holy God, Father most gracious, rebuke us not in your anger, nor chasten us in your wrath. Heal us from our sin, for we are troubled. Deliver us for the sake of your steadfast love. Our sins trouble us, O God. We are troubled by how they have hurt others. We are troubled by how they have hurt us. Your ways are right. O righteous God, and whenever we have refused to follow them, we have found out how right they are. Have mercy on us, O God. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Church, it's my privilege and joy as a minister of the gospel to tell you that as you pray that prayer, as you confess your sin before holy God, if you do so from a place of resting holy in Christ's work on your behalf, that your prayer for mercy, that that pleading with God to show mercy and grace to you is already answered. There is no delay in what you receive from the throne of grace. You are forgiven, you are free, because Christ has accomplished everything that it takes to do that. When Christ went to Calvary, he took your sin in full upon himself and he drank to the last drop the wrath of God for you. To the point now where if God were to judge you for your sin, it would make him unjust. He would be committing double jeopardy. It would make him wrong. The very justice of God now ensures his mercy on you because of what Christ has done. And not only have you been spared from the wrath from your sin, you have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He didn't just take your sin. He gave you everything that he earned, the way that he has satisfied every demand of the Father. He did for you. All right, Paul wrote to Timothy and said that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Everything he did here was so that he could forgive you and so that you could be declared righteous before a holy God despite your own sin, so that God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. If you are here today and your faith is in Christ, you are free and you are forgiven and you cannot be condemned. No matter how the accuser of the brethren or your own heart might condemn you, God is greater than your heart. And the accuser has been silenced by the blood of Christ. That is why we worship. Right? That is why we sing. That is why we rejoice in a God who's not just sovereign, not just mighty, not just powerful, but loves compassion and kindness and shows mercy to us while we were his enemies, while we hated him, while we were in rebellion to him. He showed love to us at the cost of his own son. So church, let's sing and worship him this morning and give praise to him that he is due for his kindness to us. Yeah. 
church that we are saved by grace and grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, for you have been saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is a gift that is offered freely to us. We don't have to do anything to earn it, nor can we do anything that allows us to earn it. But though it is free to us, it is not a gift that was won freely by him. We read Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. It says, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. So it may have been free. It may be freely offered to us, but it was not free for him. The joyous end that we can achieve by grace is one that came through his sorrows.
Amen, church. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you for singing the gospel to me. There's no better way to get ready to preach the gospel than to hear a hundred and something voices proclaiming it to you. It's a beautiful thing about our worship. It's not like pregame music, right? We are responding to the promises and provision of God by praising him, but we're also singing to each other. Ephesians is really clear about that. We are bearing witness to one another about who God is and what he's done. Uh, This is a beautiful gift uh, that we get to share together. If you would, open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be picking up in verse 13 today. 
One of the things that happens a lot with us is that we, we can very easily miss the true significance of events. Or we can know what happens, but a lot of times we think certain things are really important and they turn out to be not so important, whether that's even in our own like, personal lives or on a big, bigger scale. And sometimes things that seem small uh, end up very, very significant, far more than we could imagine. I like history quite a bit, and, and one of those sorts of things that has always just kind of blown me away uh, is the, uh, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914. Franz Ferdinand was the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, and he was killed by 19-year-old Gavrilo Princep. The fact that it even happened took a confluence of so many small little things um, for that event to even happen. And an assassination certainly isn't a small thing, but it's not unprecedented, right? There have been many heirs to the throne who've been uh, taken out over the years. It's, it's always been a dangerous business. I think back to what even we saw with Herod. He took out many of his own, his own children who bore that title. But very few of these assassinations are anything more than just a footnote in history, right? But this particular one, this particular event, was most of one of those consequential events in the history of the world. This was the first domino to fall. This assassination lit the fuse that would ultimately spark World War I. World War I, also known as the Great War, or the war to end war, or the war to end all wars, because the scope of it was just so unimaginable compared to any human conflict that had happened before. 20 million died in World War I. It was just a scale that had never been seen before. And it was all set off by this one act of a teenager. And the thing is, the, the results, the, the effects of Princeps actions didn't stop with World War I. H.G. Wells called it the war to end war because everyone thought it was so horrific and so huge that nobody would ever want to go to war again. But it's actually the events of World War I and how things unfolded there that directly led to World War II, which had four times the human toll, 85 million dead literally reshaped the world. How many humans were not touched or affected by that in some way? By a 19-year-old kid shooting an heir to the throne in Hungary. It's wild. It's wild. And if you were on the other side of history, before this happens, none of us would ever predict that, right? We'd never say, oh yeah, some teenager's gonna shoot a guy and it's gonna do this. Nobody would have even imagined anything like on that scope could ever even happen. Today, church, we're looking at the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus. And there are all sorts of ways we can miss the significance of this event. It's a really short account in Matthew. It's only about 100 words long in Greek. It's, you know, millions of people have been baptized over the years. It's not a particularly unique thing from the, the external circumstances, right? And a lot of us are familiar with this event. We heard it in Sunday school. We've been around the church. We know Jesus gets baptized. It's just kind of a thing. And we can easily just glance along the surface of it. But what I want to show you today 
So when we really understand everything that happened in these few short verses in Matthew, in the baptism of Jesus, that this event 2,000 years ago is one of the most significant events of your life. It is one of the most significant events of your life. And church, I am not being hyperbolic about that. I am much more concerned about failing to show you its significance than I am about, about under-delivering, right? It is, I, I can't, it's so remarkable all that this means and all that this gives to us. So let's dive into it. Matthew 3, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let me pray for us, church. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially for this particular section of it you've given us today. And Lord, I, um, I just ask for your help with it. Um, it is so rich and um, so life-giving. And I know, um, I just, I feel my weakness in able to, to, to give that to your people. Um, and my hope is that uh, you work well through weak vessels, uh, Lord, and that uh, none of this hinges on me. Uh, this all hinges on the work of your spirit. So we ask for your, for your help, for his help today, uh, that my words would be his words to your church, and that he would be at work at our hearts to, to do, as Paul so often prayed for, he would strengthen us to be able to understand what we see of Christ here. So we confess our dependence on you and just ask that you would faithfully care for your church this morning through the preaching of your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so in some ways, this is really kind of part two of what we did last week when we looked at John's baptism. This is really a second iteration, but I didn't think you guys wanted a three-hour sermon last week, so here we are. We're going to pick up. Right? But what we did last week is very important for understanding what we're looking at today. That background work we did last week on understanding what exactly is John's baptism, right? What was he doing? What was his message? What was going on there is huge. And what we saw is that John was preaching repentance, right? He was driving home to God's people their sinfulness, the perfect holy righteousness of God, and the fact that every single one of them to a man was unclean. It wasn't just the Gentiles, it wasn't just the Romans, it wasn't just the tax collectors and prostitutes, every single one of them, including the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders, every single one of them was in need of repentance and cleansing before holy God. And that was the heart of John's message. He preached the law, he preached the law well, and that was how he prepared the way for the work of Jesus. But one thing that we didn't talk about when we looked at John's baptism was where John was baptizing, right? And if you guys have noticed, as we've been going through Matthew, 
the geography in Matthew matters. Right? We've been to a lot of different places, and every single one has been very significant. It's, had, it's told us a lot about who Jesus is, what kind of king he's going to be. Right? We've been through Bethlehem, Judea, Nazareth, Egypt, and all of those places have had significance in terms of communicating to us about Jesus. And the Jordan River is no less significant than those. Right? Our first verse tells us that Jesus travels from Nazareth, and he travels to the Jordan to be baptized. So what is significant about this baptism happening in the Jordan? Matthew actually mentions it twice. He mentions it in verse 36 when he's talking about John's general ministry, and he mentions it specifically here about Jesus. So he really wants us to know this happened in the Jordan. Why does it matter? Well, we need to understand the place Jordan, the Jordan River held for Israel, right? And, and what happened at the Jordan and how they saw it, right? And the first place we need to go back to is Israel. When they're coming out of Egypt, they come out of Egypt, God brings them out across the Red Sea, and they come to the promised land, but they don't believe that God can deliver it to them. They're afraid of the people, and as judgment for their lack of faith, God condemns them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years so that entire generation dies, including Moses. Everybody dies there. And that time of, of homeless wandering and death, that's what that wilderness time was. It was not, that was not a good thing. They were wandering around in the desert for 40 years, waiting for everyone to die. That's what it was. And that ended at the Jordan River. They came to the Jordan River after those 40 years. Moses dies at the Jordan. He didn't get to enter the promised land. He, leadership gets handed off to Joshua. And the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, and when their, foots, their feet touch the water of the Jordan, the Jordan splits open. And they cross through the Jordan to the other side. They exit the wilderness of homelessness and death into the promised land of, of life. Right? Joshua leads them in to the promise in a way that Moses could not. Right? And we see the waters of the Jordan. That's not the only time they parted. They part later on with the prophet Elijah. We've talked about Elijah a lot, right? Because John the Baptist is the new Elijah. We've been seeing that, right? There's all these connections between John and Elijah. Well, when Elijah neared his time, on the end of his time on this earth, he also went to the Jordan with Elisha, his understudy. And when he went to the Jordan, he parted the waters. And he crossed the waters. And after he did, a chariot from heaven came and gathered him up and took him out of this world. And as he did, Elisha was given a, he asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, a double portion of the work that the Holy Spirit was doing through Elijah to minister to the people of God there. And he receives it. So we see a similar thing, right? There's this crossing over and the handoff of a predecessor to a successor who does greater things. And as seminal a figure as Elijah is, Elisha does greater things. He does many of similar miracles, but they're always bigger, greater in number. Right? This gets borne out. And now we come to the new Elijah, John the Baptist. And he's in the water at the Jordan. And who's there with him now? One greater who will come after him. On the other side of the Jordan, 
of going through the Jordan and baptism, Jesus is going to accomplish for his people what John cannot. The same way Joshua did for Moses and the same way Elisha did for Elijah. So what Jordan represented for Israel was this place of transition, a place where you passed out of, of homelessness and wandering and, and into promise. It marked the end of these times of, of suffering and weakness and into this, this greater time of God's deliverance and promise. Right. Okay, that's significant, right? We're supposed to see that all here. Matthew writes this with the Old Testament in mind. And so we're supposed to see the same thing going on here. When Jesus comes to the Jordan, the same thing is happening. John could preach repentance. He'd say, come confess your sins and get dunked into the water. He could not forgive sins. He preached the law. He didn't have a gospel, right? He said, you need, there needs to be one that comes after me who will baptize you with the Spirit, right? You need somebody else. I'm not enough. I'm getting you ready for the real work that needs to come. And this is signaling us that that's here. That's here. So let's see what's happened. We've got the scene set. What takes place? In verse 14, we read that John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized to you, and do you come to me? So Jesus shows up, and John says, I'm not doing it. I'm not baptizing you. And if you guys remember last week, this is very out of character for John. Just last week, he was lighting up the Sadducees and Pharisees for not getting in the water and getting baptized, right? He was telling everybody, nobody was off the hook for this. Everybody was unclean. Everybody needed to be washed. And now Jesus shows up, and he's like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. This isn't right. This is not how things should happen. What's different? Why, why is this the case? Well, first and foremost, there's a kind of general humility with John, right? There's all this talk about John, how he's the forerunner of somebody greater, right? This is pointing us to that, like the greater one has come. It's a little bit tricky to understand how much John has put together at this point. Uh, sometimes he seems like he gets a lot about who Jesus is. Other times he seems to be confused or doubting. Um, we'll see that as we go through Matthew. He knows Jesus. They were cousins. They were born very close together. They, their moms were pregnant at the same time. So Jesus is not new to him, but it's, it's hard to know exactly how much he grasps. But in this moment, at this baptism, he understands that Jesus is this greater one who is to come, right? And so he should not be the one baptizing this greater one. So it's, it's a sign of humility. But it's also a sign of something more significant than that. That's kind of general and broad, but there's something deeper Right? Remember what John's baptism is about. What's it about? About repentance. So I'm unclean. I need to be washed. That's what it's for. That's what John's baptism is for. As people were coming to be baptized, what were they doing? They were confessing their sins and being baptized. Right? John says no to baptizing Jesus because he gets that Jesus is the only guy in town who doesn't need it. He has no sin to confess. There's nothing to be washed off. There's no reason to baptize this guy because he is clean. He is the only one who is clean. He has nothing to repent of, no sin to confess. This baptism is not for him. It does not apply to the perfect son of God. There's two people in the water, but only one who needs to be washed. And that one is not Jesus. It's John. 
right? He acknowledges this. He's like, hey, you should be baptizing me. This is, this is all backwards. Everything is off here. And it, this, this is the reverse of something we see towards the end of Jesus' ministry, right? Before the Last Supper, Jesus comes, and they're getting ready to do the Last Supper, and Jesus dresses as a servant, and he comes to wash his disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter. Peter says, oh, no, you're not going to wash me. Like, you should, you're great. You shouldn't wash me. I, I should be doing this. And Jesus tells him, unless I wash you, you have no part of me, right? Peter thought it was about what he did for Christ. And Christ is saying, no, you have to understand this. I have to do for you. You can't do for me. I have to do for you. And here we see that God gives John a little insight. He realizes he can't do for Jesus. He can't give anything to Jesus. He can't do anything for Jesus, but he needs Jesus to do something for him. John gets it right, where we'll later see Peter confused. Peter thought the greatness of Jesus meant we meant us serving him. But actually, his view of the space between us and Christ was too small, right? He thought he could do something for him. Jesus is so great that he needs nothing from us. We can do nothing to improve him. And we desperately need to be served by him. John got it right. He recognized the superiority of Jesus, that he had nothing to be cleansed from. And he's also right in the fact that he needs cleansing from Christ. Right? So when John says no, he's right. And if you notice in the passage, Jesus doesn't correct him. Right? He doesn't say, no, 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 John, you're wrong. Right? His answer is a little bit different than that. John nailed it. But Jesus insists on going forward anyway, without really correcting John. Let's move on to verse 15. In verse 15, we hear Jesus answer, and he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And so Jesus presses John to move forward, not saying, Hey, John, you're wrong, right? No, he pushes him forward on the grounds that it is to fulfill all righteousness, right? John was right because it wasn't fitting. Now Jesus says it is fitting because of this reason, to fulfill all righteousness. So us understanding this baptism really hinges on us understanding what that means. What does that mean? Why is Jesus being baptized? What is happening here? This is the, this is the key that unlocks it. And when we see righteousness biblically, what are we typically thinking of? Right? We're thinking of obedience, right? We're thinking of doing what God says, following his law, keeping his law. That's the idea. It's walking the straight and narrow, right? Obeying. But when it comes to this baptism, there is no positive command to be baptized for, at this point, right? For us as Christians, for Christian baptism, there is. There's no command for this baptism, Go look all over. You won't find it. It's not there. Right, so Jesus is not doing this. We know Jesus has to keep the whole law. He has to have perfect righteousness to give to us. But him being baptized right here is not actually about that. He's not commanded to be baptized. He's not satisfying some demand of God in this. It has to be something a little different. So how do we understand what it means here for him to fill, fulfill this righteousness? Again, 
the context of what John's been doing is so important, right? John's preaching about this righteousness that God demands, the fact that God is perfect and holy and every single one of us is unclean in comparison to him. And he's calling everyone to repent. And what was happening, right? People are streaming out to the desert to see this guy dressed in camel hair, eating locusts and honey, crazy prophet guy. And they're going out and they're going down into the water with him and they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized. They're being cleansed through these waters of baptism. Now play the image out a little further. Sinner after sinner, coming to the waters, bringing their idolatry, their rebellion, their lust, their anger, their jealousy, their lying, their discontentment, sins of all kinds, and they're bringing them with them down into this water, confessing them to John and being washed. What happens when you put something dirty into water, into clean water. The water gets dirty, right? If you ever mop the floor, you know this. First time you stick that thing back in there, it's just gross, right? That's a little bit of the image here, right? These people are coming in to get baptized, confessing their sin, and the picture is they're being washed. And that's that sin is figuratively being washed where? Into the Jordan, right? Dirty sinners are going into this water and washing this sin off into this water. And now, Jesus, righteous, pure, holy Jesus, steps into the dirty water. Not dirty himself, perfectly clean. And he is washed in the dirty water. The clean one, the pure one, is washed in the dirty, sin-filled water. Not to be made clean, but to take on the sin of the people on himself. The baptism of Jesus is a reverse of John's baptism. The unclean are going there to be washed and made clean, and now it's the clean one going to take those sins of the people, take that uncleanness, and take it into himself. He's going to the water and saying, give me the sin. This is what I'm here for. This is the start of Jesus' ministry, guys. This is his first thing he does. The first thing he does is to go in the water and say, give me the sin. It's mine. He takes the sin into himself. Read what Paul says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin, to be sin. Think about the way he puts that, right? Who knew no sin, right? Perfect, pure, holy Jesus. So that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The righteousness that Jesus and John are fulfilling by doing this here is not Jesus' righteousness. Jesus doesn't need this for his righteousness. He needs it for your righteousness. He needs it for your righteousness. He is going into this water not because he needs it, but because we need it. We need somebody, right? Jordan, the Jordan's not washing away sin any more than the blood of bulls and goats forgave sin in the Old Testament, Right? They are signs that point us to what we need. Jesus is the one who actually washes away sin. And that is what's going on in his baptism. As all the unclean have come to be washed in the water, now the clean one comes and takes the uncleanness on himself. It is a baptism of repentance, but not his own repentance. It's a baptism so that he can repent us. Right? So that he can turn us. It is for us. 
he goes into the water not to be made clean, but so that he might make us clean by taking our sin into himself. Sin that he will ultimately take in his flesh and kill on a cross. Peter literally puts it that way. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Do you guys see the beauty of this? Like, this is just an incredible, incredible picture of the work of Christ for us. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God goes and takes on himself all of our sin. John's baptism was fitting and right for Jesus to participate in because he didn't do it for himself, but he did it for us. He did it for you. It was not to make him clean, but for him to take your uncleanness. Because this is the very beginning. This is the launch point for Jesus' ministry. And from the jump, he makes it abundantly clear what he is here to do. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Paul says in Timothy, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the foremost. He is here to take on the sins of his people. That's what the baptism is about. Right, this baptism, this commencement of his public ministry is the start of him bearing the sins for his people. It's going to culminate at Calvary. And then, so we don't miss it, God puts some exclamation points on it in the rest of the passage. Right, and we have this incredibly beautiful and unique revelation of the Trinity as we go on. Let's pick up in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice of heaven said, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right, we see here that the work of Jesus is the work of the Trinity. Right, we have Jesus there in the water, the Spirit of God appearing like a dove, descending, landing on him, and then the voice of the Father speaking out from heaven. Right, and it says here that the heavens were opened up to him. And that, that word for opened up is actually to be torn open. Right, it, it's, it's kind of more intensive than we think of when we just hear opened up. And whenever that phrase gets used, the heavens are opened up, it always is followed by either some special revelation of God or a unique intervention of him in, in human history beyond just his normal providential sovereign ruling of all things, but a unique intervention. And, and we see both of these things here. Jesus is both of these things. He is a unique revelation of who God is. He's the perfect image of God. Right? Scripture tells us that. But he is also God's ultimate intervention on behalf of man. He is both of these things. This idea of the heavens being opened up for Jesus is pointing him to this. This is the revelation of God and God's intervention on behalf of man is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Then we see the Holy Spirit who appears like a dove. This is really pointing us back to a couple places in the Old Testament. The first is Genesis 1, 1-2, the creation of the world. And in Genesis 1-2, we read that the earth was all form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we need that paired with Genesis 8. This is after the ark, right, the flood. 
We pick up in verse 10, and it says, Noah waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. All right, so this idea, the idea that is captured here in the Holy Spirit appearing like the dove is, is this idea of doves represent, have come to represent peace, Right? We, we have this even in our common parlance, right? And that traces back to here. In Genesis 1, we see the Holy Spirit kind of bringing form out of chaos, right? There's just this void, empty thing, and the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water, bringing it into order. And then in Noah's Ark, which is really after Noah's Ark, it's, it's really a recreation story, right? Everything is judged, wiped out, and then there's this kind of new creation that happens. And as they're on the ark, they're sending out the dove to see if judgment is over, is, ho- is the hostility over, right? And when it is, the dove comes back with the olive branch, right? So this idea is that this spirit-empowered work of Jesus is here to end the hostility between God and man, right? And it, and it is here to recreate what has been destroyed and wrecked by sin, right? That is what the Holy Spirit is here to do, and that's what's imaged in this picture of the dove, there's now going to be a chance for reconciliation with God for sinful people, right? There's going to be a way for hostility to be ended. Ephesians 2 is great on this, right? It talks about how Jesus puts to death the hostility between us and God and between us and each other in his body, right? That's the idea here, right? That's what this this way of the Holy Spirit revealing himself is pointing us to. There's a chance for peace with God Almighty, and a chance for, for new, beautiful recreation to come out of the brokenness and wreck of sin. Lastly, we come to the Father. And of the Father, we hear a voice regarding Jesus that declares, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father's words here draw together two Old Testament passages, again, just like the imagery of the Spirit does. Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Psalm 2 is one of the best and most important messianic psalms that we have. It shows God's Son triumphing over his enemies and ushering in the kingdom that will encompass the nations. And this particularly draws on Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So in referencing this and kind of drawing our attention back to Psalm 2, what, what God is saying is, hey, this is, this is the Messiah. This is my son who's going to rule, who's going to reign, who's going to bring in this kingdom that is going to encompass all nations. But it's joined together. The second half of that phrase comes from another place in Isaiah 42. Isaiah makes a big shift at chapter 40. Before that, it's a lot of judgment. Starting in chapter 40, it's a shift to the future hope of God's promises and his deliverance. And Isaiah 42, 1 says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon you, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is part of a whole collection of Isaiah's prophecies called the servant songs. This is another way that the Messiah is identified. He is this servant of God who will be faithful in every way. He will do everything that God asks. He will not fail in any respect. And it really culminates in the Isaiah 50s, 
right? Grant read for us earlier a passage from Isaiah 53. That's probably the one we know best, right? It's this, this incredibly heavy but beautiful picture of the suffering servant, right? The servant's faithfulness, the Messiah's faithfulness culminates in ultimately he's faithful even to death. He lays down his life to redeem and to save God's people, right? In there we read verses like, he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Right? So what the Father's doing here with this declaration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? He's bringing together these two messianic identities and saying, this is the guy, right? This is my king who is going to bring in a kingdom that is greater than all the nations. It's going to encompass all the nations. But it's going to look a little different than you think because this king who's going to bring in this kingdom a big part of bringing in this kingdom is that he's going to die. Right? He's going to form this people for himself. This kingdom is going to come about by him laying down his life. Not by taking political power, not by any of the traditional ways we would think, but by dying. By actually making his enemies think they've won when they nail him to the cross. But in the very moment they think they've done it, he's accomplished the, the very thing that is needed to create and form this. He is the king of kings whose kingdom will have no end, but he is also the suffering servant who sacrifices himself to deliver his people. They are one and the same. And that's why God declares this particular statement over him, to, to draw us to both of those things. As Jesus is embarking on this king, where he's going to declare the kingdom, and he's going to declare himself king, we get this image of, okay, what is this kingdom going to be? It's going to be the kingdom where the king of kings dies for his enemies. That's what this kingdom is going to look like, and that's going to get fleshed out throughout the gospel. Now, church, I said at the beginning that this event 2,000 years ago was one of the most significant events of your life. I hope you can kind of see that from what we've done so far, but I want to bring it around full circle by talking about our baptism. So throughout the last two weeks that this baptism is not Christian baptism. Christian baptism is a different thing. It's not John's baptism. Our baptism is not primarily a baptism of repentance. It is baptism into Christ, right? We are not baptized to wash away our sins. We are baptized as the sign that the Spirit has united us to him. And all that is his is ours, and he has taken everything that needs to be taken from us on himself. Our water baptism is a sign of the baptism of the Spirit that John said Jesus would bring. That baptism of the Spirit is him joining us to Christ in the spiritual union to where we get everything that is his. It joins us to him in a way that we participate in his baptism. That sin that was pictured in that baptism of him taking it on, it wasn't just generic sin. When you were united to him in Christ, it means it was your sin. Every last one of them he took into himself. He became your sin. Right? When you are united to Christ, that becomes true, not just as an abstract thing, 
but true of you personally. He became your sin. Every last one. Even the ones you don't even know about. Even the ones you don't even see. Even the ones that you don't hate and you don't regret and you don't repent of. Every last one he took in to himself. Right? But that's just one side of the coin. That's just one of the benefits. It also unites you to all that he has won. He doesn't just save you from the wrath that you deserve, but he gives you all that he has earned and won. If we go back and look at these these prophecies of the Messiah, there's all this stuff about how he's going to be faithful and what God is going to give him as a reward for his faithfulness. Well, the New Testament is so bold to call us co-heirs. Co-heirs. Heirs with Christ. That's, That's a term of equality. The idea is that what Christ has won is as much ours as it is his. That is not an exaggeration. That is what Scripture says. That is what this spiritual union means. This is what our salvation means, that you are so tied to Christ that what is his is yours. Church, this is so true. That that declaration of the Father, right? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That declaration is as much true of you as it is of Christ. For that not to be true of you means it has to be untrue of Christ when you are united in him. Do you guys get how profound that is? Think about who you are. Think about your weakness and your failure. And think about who's saying those words. This is the holy God of the universe who upholds the world by the word of his power who's sovereign over every atom in every universe. And he says to you, you who are like dust, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because you are united to Christ. And for it to not be true of you means it has to become untrue of Jesus. That is just mind-boggling. His work for you is so complete, so sufficient, that you, with all your sin and all your rebellion and all your weakness, you are identified as God's beloved. And he says he is pleased with you. I can barely please people, right? And now the God of the universe says he is pleased with me because of Jesus. The holy God of the universe, whom angels worship, whom angels can't even lift their face, they cover their eyes because of the glory of God. He's the one who says this to us. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And church, this is the glorious thing. It will not change, right? It will not change. When you fail tomorrow, when you sin tomorrow, when you rebel tomorrow, it will not change because you have not earned it. It is not contingent on anything in you. It's not hinging on how well you hold on or how much you improve. There is nothing good in you that would improve what Christ has done for you. And there is nothing so bad that you could make it even harder for him to make this true of you. That's how certain this is, church, because it is all rests on Christ. 
It all rests on Christ. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news. This is why we can say we have good news, right? It's not because we have a better system of morality or anything. It's because, no, because the holy God of, uni- of the universe can call me beloved and well-pleasing. Not because of anything in me, but because what he has done for me in Christ. Church, this is why he calls us to the table each week, right? Why we participate in the Lord's Supper each week. He's given this to us because this is so hard for us to grasp. This is so hard to believe because, you know, the whole thing about something being too good to be true, like, this is the best thing ever. And yet it is true. And that is so hard for our human hearts to grasp. Paul's always praying things like this for the churches, that God would strengthen them to be able to believe, that they'd be able to actually think some, trust that something this good is real. Right? And we have our baptism to look back to that is supposed to remind us of it. It's supposed to remind us of our union with Christ. It's the sign of that. Right? But that happens once, and we need more than once. And so God is kind and gracious to give us the supper, right? which points to the same thing. The baptism and the supper are the gospel in sign form instead of word form. It's the same thing. It's nothing different there than what I'm telling you right now. It's the same thing. If there's not, you need to get a new preacher, right, because he's messing up. It should be the same thing. It's the gospel, right? We need this every week. We are so prone to trust in ourselves. We so want to be enough. The battle of the Christian life, church, is to trust wholly and fully in Jesus and to not depend on ourselves, That is the hard thing in the Christian life. That's the battle. That's the struggle. And God is kind to us in that. He knows our frame. He knows that we're weak. He knows that even while we believe, we need help for our unbelief. And so he gives us the gospel, not just in what we sing, not just in what we preach, but he gives it to us, to all of our senses in the supper. So church, if you are in Christ today by faith, if you are united to him the way that we talked about, this meal is for you. Right, this is Christ's meal for you to nurture your faith and to strengthen your heart to truly believe this. So I invite you to participate with us. If, if that is not you this morning, if you are not trusting in Christ, everything I talked about is not true of you, and you should not partake of this meal. And trust me, it is not because we want to withhold something good from you. We don't want you to be confused. Right? We don't want you to think you have something that you do not have. This, this meal is only a means of grace when it is taken in faith. And so it would benefit you none at all, right? And so if, if that's where you are, if you're hearing this and like, this is strange, I don't understand this, I don't believe this, like, please come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about it. You know, answer your questions, I'll let you wrestle with it. Um, but this meal isn't for you. This is for the family of faith. So we're going to sing in a minute. And as we do, the elements are in the back uh, at tables. Um, the clear cups have wine. The purple cups have grape juice bread's on the bottom, so you only need to grab one. Uh, come back to your chairs, hold on to them, and then in a minute, David Beal, our church planter in residence here, is going to come up and, and walk us through the supper and how that gives us the gospel again and is a kindness and a means of grace to us. So church, stand with me. I'll pray, and we'll uh, sing and receive the elements. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've given us in Christ, for the fact that he, under no compulsion, under no obligation, in all his purity and cleanness, walked into the filthy water of our sin and took it all into himself in a way that didn't corrupt him at all, but allowed him to put it to death. 
in his body on the cross. It is our only hope. There's no hope in us and what we can do. All our hope is in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would convince our hearts of that more and more deeply. Lord, I pray that you'd use your supper to do that in us this morning. And Lord, I just pray with Paul that you would give us the spiritual strength to comprehend the depth of your love for us and the depth and the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing, receive the elements. Exalted Son of glory Humbly came down from your hands.
church you know from the tree of life in Eden to the Exodus Passover to the peace offering meal taken after the atonement offering to the Last Supper worship in Scripture has always included feasting and it's not because God is so focused on the consumption of food we often associate food with just the physical consumption of it, and uh, no doubt that's a great part of it, right? But he desires more than consumption. He desires for himself and for you communion. That's why we call this meal communion. He wants communion with us. He wants us to have communion with him. What better way to slow things down, to get your mind off the tasks and the burdens that weigh you down, to focus on the people that matter in your life than to sit down with them and have a meal with them. That's what this meal is. And it's what will be our crowning joy one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb to sit down and to feast with the Lamb himself. This meal is more than just a casual lunch with a friend, however. It, it's a sacrament. It's a, it's a means of grace which represents the finished work of Christ for you, for you. It points to that which makes this communion even a possibility. So what we are doing right now is pointing to the thing that made what we're doing right now even something that we could take part in. Without that which this meal represents, there's no meal. There's no communion. So my brothers and sisters, through the Lord's Supper, it is God's Spirit in this place with us right now, each and every week, that strengthens our faith in what he's already done. And it's finished, it's accomplished, it's done, period, over. It strengthens our faith in him. It strengthens our hope in one day enjoying this in person with him. As he said, he won't take part in this meal. He won't drink wine again until he is with us. What a great hope to look forward to. It's, it's his hope toward us. What a great thing would it be for us to take this meal every week and not just look back, but to look forward to what we will enjoy with him. But it also strengthens our love amongst the brethren. This is a great bond together that we get to enjoy every week as we take the same bread, we take the same cup, and we feast on the same Christ. And in so doing, we meet with him And our souls are nourished, not individually, but together. And may this bond grow in meaning this morning. So this this meal that we do somewhat ritualistically is not just a ritual. It is 
something powerful, it's something meaningful, and it's not something that we are even really doing for him. Augustine rightly said and compared worship and, and acts like this as something that doesn't benefit God at all. It benefits us. It, it, he compared it to a man who's thirsty going to a fountain and drinking. Is that man's drinking of the fountain benefiting the fountain? <laughs> Not at all. Or a man who's in darkness being guided by a light. Is his taking part in the, the light that that provides for him on his way, is that benefiting the light at all? No. So we don't benefit the fountain. We don't benefit the light by receiving its gift. We just receive and that's what we do right now. So this meal is not a gift we bring to God, but a gift of grace for you. Christ is broken and spilled out for you, church. So take the bread and eat in remembrance of Christ. And likewise, his blood spilled for you the cup in remembrance of Christ. Pray with me. Father, we are just blown away that you would look at us and make us into that which is pleasing to you through Christ. And thank you for this meal, this gospel in our senses that reminds us, reminds us each and every week that we are not worthy, but you were everything that we could not be. And you exchanged our sin. You took on yourself, your righteousness. We take on ourselves. Thank you for the goodness that we get to enjoy because of your suffering and your sacrifice for us. Thank you that this meal each and every week sustains and nourishes us as we grow in your grace and love one another and look forward to hopefully very soon enjoying this in your presence with you. In your name, amen. Church, I want to leave with you a benediction from the book of Jude as we go our ways separately this, this afternoon. The word of the Lord says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In light of this good news, his gospel, church, go in peace.